Actually, that, that weight was a bit of a gift for me because as I sat here and listened to the rain, I was remembering years and years ago when Vipassana Santa Cruz was still meeting at the Santa Cruz Zen Center, Zendo, which was an old building. It was before it was remodeled. And my father, who was then in his 80s, I think it was by the time, by then he was in his 80s, came to try out meditating. <laughs> and it was a rainy evening, and um, I gave some instructions about hearing. And afterwards he said, it was like my ears were out on stalks. <laughs> and all I could, all there was was the sound of the rain, and I thought, oh, yes. <laughs> This was a man who didn't have much truck with religion of any form, but he loved his older daughter, so he was willing to try pretty much anything I pointed him towards. So here's a piece of a poem to start with. It's a poem by David Wagoner. It's called The Silence of the Stars, and I'm just going to read you the first part of it. When Lawrence Vanderpost one night in the Kalahari Desert told the Bushman he couldn't hear the stars singing, they didn't believe him. They looked at him, half smiling. They examined his face to see whether he was joking or deceiving them. Then two of those small men who plant nothing, who have almost nothing to hunt, who live on almost nothing and with no one but themselves, led him away from the crackling thorn scrub fire and stood with him under the night sky and listened. One of them whispered, Do you not hear them now? And Vanderpost listened, not wanting to disbelieve, but had to answer, No. They walked him slowly, like a sick man, to the small, dim circle of firelight and told him, They were terribly sorry, and he felt even sorrier for himself and blamed his ancestors for their strange loss of hearing, which was his loss now. So tonight I wanted to talk about self and big self and little self and joy and compassion and the heart. How is it we can hear the stars or not? 
So maybe three months ago, we all arrived here to practice. At least it seems that way to me. About <laughs> <laughs> you, it's a bit like you know. Every time this morning when Bob was guiding the sitting, and he'd say, "Now a minute has passed," <laughs> <laughs> and I can sort of hear that kind of, <gasps> you know, and and it always feels like what? Only a minute? That means there's twenty nine more to go. <laughs> And that always reminds me of the time some years ago when I got a note stuck up on a noteboard like this one, and it said, um, if towards the end of the sitting somebody leaps up and yells out, ring the damn bell! (laughs) Is it an act of compassion (laughs) to ring the bell? was actually a really interesting question. (laughs) So I thought for a few minutes, and then I said, no. (laughs) So we've been together for three days, not for three months, and today we listened again, as we did yesterday, and heard, you know, many of your stories. We'll hear the rest of them tomorrow, your concerns and the places where your heart is either closed or broken open or somewhere in between. It's sort of what's sometimes called the 10,000 joys and the 10,000 sorrows of the human condition. And you know, it's become pretty quiet in here with all the rain gear going in and out, maybe not quite so quiet, but it's pretty quiet. And each one of you is also quieter then probably you think you are, you know. One of the things that happens is you begin to see how noisy the mind is and then you think you're noisier, but you're not. And I suspect Marcy could tell us that it's very not quiet out there, you know, out there in town. It's pretty crazy. Even We even got a little of that energy in here today, didn't we, with the visitors coming and going, you know, all the people who come through. So we're in the middle of this process. Actually, a little past the middle at this point. So not so long ago, I was reading a a book by another teacher, a man whose name is Stephen Batchelor, and he talked in this book about a Zen koan that he had been given at one point in his life. And the koan is really simple. It is, what is this? That's all. What is this? And I really was taken by it. I like those Zen koans, those questions that have no real answer or they're teaching stories that have a funny little twist that the rational mind can't quite answer. And, you know, I look around here. I was thinking about this this afternoon. You know, and I look at these enormous trees, or you go up, if you haven't done it yet, you really should go up to the enchanted forest, to that amazing, silent, wonderful grove of redwoods, or the prayer wheels, all the different ones that are around here. <coughs> or I look around at your faces, you know, your very still faces. Sometimes I peek during a set. Or this morning I was noticing on the bamboo out here, has at the tip of each drop 
at each of each leaf it had a drop of dew you know just hanging there what is this it's a great question isn't it i mean you look at one of those trees and you think what is this what is it indeed so we called this retreat a retreat about opening the heart about finding a way to approach life and to meet the different pieces of your existence with without having to close the heart down and we've been talking in here every afternoon 5:15 about the practice of loving kindness which is one of the most basic practices of opening the heart of training the heart ultimately if if you were to fully realize this practice you would be able to meet every being who came toward you and any being <coughs> who came toward you with equal kindness so that's a pretty challenging practice if you think about it and there are other practices for the heart there's practices that develop compassion you know the ability to be with our own pain and the pain of others without having to turn away and the practice of of mudita or gladness or sympathetic joy which is enjoying our own happiness and that of another and then um, so i'm going to talk about those two tonight and then tomorrow bob will be talking about the practice of equanimity of balance of how is it that we ride the waves of life so these these are all um practices of the heart they're called the brahma vihara or the divine abodes i always think of them as the great place you know for the heart to live you know it's a, it's it's a divine place for the heart to live really wonderful and i know having listened to a number of you that that you came here looking for this hoping to find some some way in which you can hold some of these in your own life and 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 that you're wondering you know how how can this be done so we've begun by working with mindfulness you know becoming aware of what's in our experience seeing hearing tasting touching smelling mental objects if you can find anything else i would like to know about it but i don't think you're going to find it that's all there is seeing hearing tasting touching smelling mental objects and beginning to see how they just flow through don't they a breath a sound the itch then the mind takes off and it's not here you have the novel then you wake up you come back you're still itching then you take off again you come back you're still itching and then you get annoyed you notice the anger finally you go back to the breath it's kind of like that one moment after another and last night Jill gave us that wonderful acronym of rain that came up in a number of my interviews today recognize accept investigate and non-identification or not taking it personally it's such a great acronym for our practice it really is you know if you if you work and look 
you gave us the acronym. You call it invited the rain. She gave us the acronym. We got the rain. So that's sort of underlining, right? And it's important because we identify, don't we? You know, we get caught in our stories. We we understand that this is who we are. These thought lines that run over and over. Bob was talking about this morning, and they they are like some of them. They're like really bad and really repetitive soap operas. You know, the soap opera that you don't even need to hear it a second time, except your mind is playing it for the 16th. And you know who is front and center in the cast, right? It's I or me or mine, over and over and over. And often, when we take that third foundation of mindfulness and check, you know, what's the state of my mind-heart complex, citta in Pali, and we find out that it's often, it's tight, it's closed, the gates are up, the guns are at the ready, you know, we are really shut down and defensive and really protecting this place that's me and mine. So, one of the most important questions in all of this is, what is this thing we call a self? You know, what is it that is constantly taking up all this airtime as the kind of star of the bad soap opera? (laughs) So, there are three major realms of insight in Buddhist practice. So one is to notice the inherent unsatisfactoriness of existence. It's called dukkha. Some of you know the word well. And what that's saying... (laughs) Dukkha, dukkha, dukkha. Maybe that's the only mental note you need. (laughs) And it's that place that where... Nothing ever is permanently fine. Isn't that interesting? Nothing is permanently fine. The meal might be great. The sex might be fabulous. You found the right job or the right relationship or the perfect house. But sooner or later, things change. And they end or they deteriorate or we just don't like it so much as we did. And, you know, you can't eat the same fabulous meal for forever, right? After a while, (laughs) it's not so good. And so nothing stays perfect. It just doesn't. It never gets to that point. I can remember, I've told this story so many times, years ago, back in the days when I kept an appointment book and did lots of journaling, and I would spend hours sometimes trying to figure out how I was going to live my life and keep my schedule so that it would be perfect. I would be stable, I would have just enough work but not too much, just enough open time but not too much, just enough time for my relationship and my kids but not too much or not too little, and I would get everything all moved around. (laughs) And did it stay fine? It took me, I'm not a fast learner, it took me a while. And gradually I figured out 
it wasn't going to get settled. It was never permanently fine. That's dukkha. And of course, it's really a problem when we want it to be perfect and fine and settled. We notice in the second of these major insights how incredibly impermanent everything is. It's arising and passing so fast. This retreat, three of our four full days of practice are just about gone. Isn't that interesting? Gone. And where is the broccoli cheddar soup? <laughs> back there with the dinosaurs. It's that gone. Not to mention breakfast, you know. It's it's kind of scary when you really begin to see how the past is just constantly, you know, it's like it's right there, right behind you, just dropping off into whatever it is it drops off into. And then, on top of it all, in the third of these insights, no matter how closely you look, you are not going to be able to find anything that is solid and permanent and self. You can't. You can try if you'd like, but you won't really be able to find it. And that particular insight can be pretty unsettling because, after all, I seem real enough, right? feels real, you know. And many of you have spent a lot of money in therapy (laughs) developing a stronger sense of self and getting a good and healthy ego going and a nice set of boundaries. So, you know. And if you haven't spent the money getting that, you've earned the money doing it. Some of us have done that, too. So, you know. What am I talking about here? And sometimes, of course, you hear enough of this kind of conversation at a retreat, it starts feeling a little scary, like, what's going to happen if I do this practice long enough? And if I sit intensely enough? And, you know, maybe if I go too deep, I'm just going to go poof or something and (laughs) disappear, you know? And I used to have, at certain points in my retreats, and I've heard this from other students, I would start having nightmares about dying or disappearing. And I I began to understand that it was at a a certain place in the retreat where the sense of self just wasn't quite, you know, was beginning to feel a little questionable. However, you might remember that there have been a lot of really awakened beings in human history that we know of. Jesus, the Buddha, Mohammed, Francis of Assisi, the Dalai Lama, Mother Teresa. I mean, we could have a long, long list of all of these people. And they all seem to continue to be recognizable to their family and friends. So they don't go poof, no matter (laughs) what it is that happens. And really, it's about beginning to understand what's going on in a very different way. So, our physicist friends, my husband in my case, tells us that our being, that all being, is made up of incredibly tiny particles. Particles that are 10 powers of 10. 10 times 10 times 10 times 10 times 10, all the way up to 10 of those, smaller than we are. That's really, really tiny. 
And these particles are all moving around. You know, if, you, if we could see them, we wouldn't see a room full of people. We'd just see this incredible dancing field of energy here. And just in case you're interested, the outer limits of the cosmos that we know are about 10 powers of 10 bigger than the human size. We seem to be right in the middle, which is a very interesting kind of place. And there are people who think that that might be significant. We know that we are literally stardust. Every element that makes up your body was produced in a supernova millions of years ago. We know that all of the elements came, all of the elements of life came from from that kind of an explosion. So long ago, in a galaxy far, far away, (laughs) you were formed, the elements of your body anyway. But, you know, that's all very well. Energy fields, big view, supernova. But we have brains that perceive in a very particular way, right? And we see objects, and they have edges, and beginnings and endings. Some of them have zip codes even. And, and we give them names. So we say cushion, and bell, and lamp, and ceiling, and... Jason, and and we agree that, you know, that's what it is that it is. There's no confusion, Jason and the lamp. (laughs) Maybe. But I don't think so. It's convenient to be able to do this. It really works in time and space to describe certain groups of these tiny particles with particular concepts. We need concepts in our world. We need to know these things. We've recently had one of those episodes that happens at retreat centers every now and then at the end of a class when people went out to the hall and claimed their shoes and somebody kept looking and looking and looking. (laughs) And after a while they realized that someone had walked off with their shoes and they were left with someone else's shoes. You know, it's not a very happy experience. Usually they fit because... <laughs> but, um, although I think there was once when what was left was one shoe. We never <laughs> so hopefully, you know, over there, you know which ones are yours, right? And you know which room is yours after we're done. And when the retreat ends, you know where to go. So if tonight, and we're not going to be able to do it, but if it were a clear night and you went outside, you could see how these concepts work because you could go outside and you could look up in the sky and you would be able, at this time of year, you can see the Big Dipper, right? And you know. Is there a Big Dipper? No. If you got in your trusty little spaceship and went zooming up there, you would not find a Big Dipper. You know, those stars aren't even close to each other, a lot of them. It's just apparent to us, and we did like you used to do when you were a child. You do connect the dots, and you go, look, it's a dipper, or a bear, if you want, if you like that image better. So that's, 
you know, that's a way that concepts work. So I don't know, not all of you are going to be able to see this. Let me put something behind it. It will help. This is the MacArthur map of the world. <laughs> it's upside down, right, right. Is it upside down? Is it upside down? You know, I, I was trying to find a copy of it online today, and one quote I found said, this map, this map, is guaranteed to stir up the gray matter of individuals who have been merely going through the motions of thinking for years. <laughs> Sorry about that. But the first time I saw it, which was at the Exploratorium, I was undone. Because we're so used to it being this way, right? And of course, when it's this way... Who's on top? We are. Right? And they live down under. I mean, can you imagine? And there's that whole sense of down under, down is it's just not quite so good down there. And it was really interesting to turn. These are quite available if you go down to Australia and New Zealand, actually. I came home with a tea towel that has it on there. And actually, there's nothing that says it has to be this way or this way. It could be this way. You know, it's all just how we choose to look at it. Because there, in space, is there, there isn't any up or down. It's just how it's happened to, you know, that our gray matter has started thinking in that particular way. That's a concept. You know, that's a concept. So the question is, what if the same thing is true of this thing that I call me? You know? What if it's me? So another one of my favorite Zen stories is the story of a Chinese emperor in about the 12th century, Emperor Wu, and he was quite the spiritual seeker, but because he was the emperor, people often told him what he want, what they thought he wanted to hear. So it was really hard to get really good spiritual teachings of the kind that sometimes push you up against the wall a little bit. And one day, he went into his court, and there was a very tall, red-haired, blue-eyed guy who looked kind of wild and very interesting. So the emperor, who was a true seeker, said, okay, I'm going to check out this guy. So he said to him, you know, I've built lots of hospitals and I've created places where poor folks can go and live and, you know, we take care of the aged and the infirm. And what about the merit of all those acts? And this person looked at him and said, no merit. Well, you can imagine, you know, you're telling the emperor that there's no merit to all these good things that he's done. It's pretty brave. And the emperor realized that immediately, like, whoa, this guy is not afraid of me. He's going to tell me the truth. So then he said, well, what about all of these volumes and volumes of holy teachings? And Bodhidharma, for it was Bodhidharma, the great Zen sage and teacher, said, 
nothing special, vast emptiness. So then the emperor got really curious, like, who is this? And he said, who are you standing there? And Bodhidharma said, haven't a clue. (laughs) (laughs) And the emperor was so flummoxed that by the time he got himself together, Bodhidharma was gone, and it said he never actually saw him again, but his life utterly changed. Haven't a clue. Haven't a clue. So, you know, what is this? And who are you sitting there? You can try try it right now. Who, you know, I can say, who are you? And you can just try on. I don't know. I haven't a clue. Try not knowing. You know, it's very, very interesting. So, you know, the Emperor Wu had Bodhidharma, and we have all these amazing images from that come to us now from the regions of deep space, and that sense of mystery, and beginning to understand that whatever it is that we're part of, we don't really know. Einstein said, the most beautiful and profound emotion we can experience is the sensation of the mystical. It is the sower of all true science. He to whom this emotion is a stranger, who can no longer wonder and stand wrapped in awe, is as good as dead. To know that what is impenetrable to us really exists, manifesting itself as the highest wisdom and the most radiant beauty, which our dull faculties can comprehend only in their primitive forms. This knowledge, this feeling, is at the center of true religion. So, you know, some of what's happening in modern science is that it's contributing to the sense of mystery, even as we uncover more. I've been really touched. You know, the Dalai Lama has said to his students, you know, if we uncover things in the world of science that are contrary to the Buddhist Buddhist teachings, we have to change our teachings. You know, we we can't have teachings that are, you know that can be proved wrong. And he's actually sending all of his monks, not all of his, but some of his monks <laughs> off to, set, to study physics and cosmology in various universities. So even, you know, even as we live in our lives, it's as though the, the truth is constantly unfolding. We don't ever get to settle in and think, ah, now I've got it, now I've got it. Remember that poem I read the first night, I would love to live like a river flows, carried by the surprise of its own unfolding. You know, that's really what we can begin to consider, is that, that it's an unfolding, our understanding. So in the texts, the Buddha says that this event that calls itself a human being is made up of what are called the five aggregates. So that's form, feeling, that's our friend, pleasant, unpleasant, and neutral again, that feeling tone, perception, mental formations, and consciousness. So it's a different list from those sense bases that I read you or I spoke to you of a few minutes ago. 
And he's saying that when all of these are there, form, feeling, perception, mental formations, and consciousness, that's, that's a human being. And um, so, you know, the awareness of physical form, the pleasantness and unpleasantness, the processes of perception, how we see, hear, taste, touch, smell, the mental processes about the experience and the underlying consciousness. So when all of these are there, they're sometimes called the five heaps or the five baskets, but I've decided that what they are is the five stones. Because when they're there in this flow of whatever, then it makes a little eddy. And that eddy is you, right? The Mary Grace eddy, the Jill eddy, the Bob eddy. And if we take any of those chunks out, no form, no Bob. You know? (laughs) Just like that. So it's very interesting. If you take them out, the whole eddy begins to disband. Sometimes they, they don't leave. and You know, you have people who lose some of their mental abilities and they're still kind of sort of there, but they're not really a whole person, are they? There's a way in which, which that, and it usually happens when people are aging and coming to the end of their lives. But we hold on to those like that. And we identify with them. That's me. That's me. And when we do that, we, it's, it really creates a lot of suffering. We create a sense of self. I am my body. I am my thoughts. I am my story. Now, You've sat with that body and those thoughts and that story. Do you really want to be identified with them? (laughs) I mean, really. Is that who and what you want to be for all of time and space? I don't know about you. I'm not interested. (laughs) The thought of that, of Mary Orness for forever, (laughs) spare me. You know? And, And... and that's what that process of holding on to these things and identifying with them and making them the center of the story, that's what begins to create the suffering. We identify with what arises in those six senses, seeing, hearing, tasting, touching, smelling, and mental objects. We create stories around them, and then we inhabit the stories. We create cycles of suffering. I am a person who always fails. I'm a person who can never go to Paris, like Jill's poem last night. I am a person who is always a victim. I am shy. I am, there's all kinds of things, you know. And I'm always, I've learned to be very, very cautious when I hear someone say, I am a person who. Now, that's a very, very dangerous phrase because it's usually pointing to a place where we're identified. We connect the dots of our experiences, of the aggregates, just like we connect the dots of the Big Dipper, and we make a story. But when we look for the concrete, just as if you were to look for that Big Dipper, then we can't find it. Recently, I've had a number of conversations with people at retreats and outside of retreat about the diminishment that comes with aging. 
because that's what's happening for me. Jason tells us that we're talking about it too much, actually. <laughs> you know. Um, <laughs> you know, we're talking about how hard it is that we can't do the things that we used to do, and we're talking about our eye surgeries and our colonoscopies and, <laughs> and our stiff knees and all of this. I used to think it was a joke that old people talked about those things. But guess what? That's what... You see all those old folks in restaurants just yucking it up? You can bet they're talking about their colonoscopy. It's really amazing to discover that it's true. It's true. Wait, you'll find out. Some of us know, and the rest of you will find out. But as I pay attention to this, it doesn't... Is this who I am? It's like I get out of bed in the morning. And I creak around, and I'm like, what? <laughs> you know, who's, somebody's like the, you know, the invasion of the body <laughs> Who Who replaced my body with this other one? <laughs> it's just not who I think I am. And it's very hard to realize that I am dying. I am. I will be 70 in October. I don't have any diagnosis. I'm not telling you. <laughs> but it's very clear to me that I have limited time left. It's very, very clear. It's true for all of us. But as we age, it becomes clearer. It really does. And we come to that point. I remember with my father when, he's, when his heart started to fail. And I was spending a lot of time with him that first summer. He lived for about a year and a half after that. And I thought, I was watching him one day move around his house, and I thought, he has no future. He has no future. Because we didn't know, you know, he could have fallen over in a few days or a few weeks, or it took a while because he was a pretty tough guy. But um, we come to that point where there is no future. We think we have a future. We're all, what have you spent your time doing on the cushion for the last you know, a few days. We are busy planning our future. (laughs) I actually, I sat a period of solo retreat recently for about 10 days and I was working with the 32 parts of the body practice on every morning because I really wanted to get the recitation down and I've taught with Bob several times now up at Spirit Rock and, you know, head hair, body hair, nails, teeth, skin... And then after I got to the end of whatever portion I was doing that day, I would make myself say, I am dying, and really try to confront the fact that my life will end. Because it feels like I don't want to be surprised. You know, I want to really go into this with as much awareness as possible. So we are impermanent. Another interesting image that I always love to teach with. So you can imagine all the groceries you've ever eaten (laughs) in bags, right? You know, it's nice big brown bags like they used to give you at the supermarket. And here come the bags down the conveyor belt. And then all of a sudden, they go into you and they manifest as you. All those carrots and cornflakes and eggs and chickens and whatever you eat, celery. And then, of course, it comes out the other side and it goes on in another bunch of bags. 
How does it know to do that? How does it know to do that? But that is what's true. We know that everything in your body, you know, changes about every seven years or so. You don't, you're not the same being that you were. And the food, the nourishment that we take in figures out how to be you. Or your body figures out how to make it you. But nonetheless, it manifests as you. That's a very interesting way to begin to think, what is the solid, separate self that I think I have? At Christmas time, I went to the IMAX with my grandsons in Dallas. And we went to see the IMAX about prehistoric sea monsters. I recommend it if you like IMAXs. And it was a lot of fun. And at the end, there was this amazing sequence of all of the periods of the Earth's geological history. So we had volcanoes and glaciers and oceans and forests arising and passing, dinosaurs, saber-toothed tigers, mastodons. All I mean, it was just it would be there and it would be gone and then you know, the ocean would take over where the mountains were, and then the volcano would come up through the ocean and turn into a desert. Whew! You know, so <laughs> fast, just zipping by in seconds. And you know, where we are in that sequence, we're just a tiny little blink, a little blip at the end, you know. And all of humanity, if you speeded it up that fast, you know, we're just one human being with little bits of us popping out to be where's Corinna? You know, we're gonna have we have a new bit coming over there, you know, this baby that's at our retreat. And it's amazing to think that that babies come out of people and then more babies will come out of those babies. Is this a separate being? We think we say it is, but if you speed it up the time sequence you might have some wonderings about it. So life sort of oozes on in time and space, endlessly creating new forms. How could we possibly imagine that we are separate? It works in time and space, right, to think that you're separate. And in a sense, it's true in time and space, but it's not ultimately true. We're the eddy and the stream of being. And when we can accept this notion, then we begin to realize how much suffering comes when we hold on and try to make it otherwise. And this is important because this is where the ending of suffering begins and it's where the heart can begin to open. So now I'm going to talk about the heart. You probably thought I'd never get there. (laughs) Our Tibetan friends... So here we are, this Tibetan subject. It's fun to talk about this here. Our Tibetan friends often, and I've heard the Dalai Lama any number of times talk about this, have a practice of the heart, which they call exchanging self for other, where you quite literally imagine yourself in the other person's shoes. And they often speak, you know, they'll look around and they'll, think of everybody as being their mother. They talk about all motherly beings. It doesn't always work so well in our culture, I think, because not all of us have had such great luck with our mothers. So I actually like to think of all childrenly beings. You know, I look around the room, 
And I go, oh, at some point, some lifetime or other, you've all been my child. Mm-hmm. And I've been your child. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's pretty, pretty interesting. And in these practices, we train the mind to cherish others. And they, often, they use that word, cherish. It's kind of old-fashioned, but I like it. We train the mind to cherish others the way we would want to be cherished. And so when we do practices like that, you now if you look around the room and go, oh, you know, all my children, we're trying on this idea of interconnectedness. You know, we're beginning to experiment with what if we're that connected, training the mind to think that way. So if I meet someone else and I immediately have a strong sense of me versus him or her or them or of course we all know sometimes it happens it's us we and they you know and it immediately creates a kind of division doesn't it and it creates separation and sometimes it's opposition and sometimes it leads to conflicts and even to wars One of the teachings that I've always loved from Aikido, and I suspect some of you are way more expert in Aikido than I am, but there's an underlying concept of the interconnectedness of all beings. And that the notion is that when you stand there and your opponent is coming toward you, then you understand the whole energy field to be one and you're moving everything in that energy field, you and the opponent, to a place of safety. Uh Oh, I might be missing. I have some nice quotes from Urashiba, who was the founder of... (laughs) I left them. One quote that I wrote into the context of the, te- the notes, however, is that in Aikido you are not opposing power but absorbing it naturally into one's own. So it's, actually, it's moving in a way, keeping the heart open, the mind open, so that everyone is safe. So what if we met each other in this way? Not oppositional, not oppositional, What if we met others and understood that they're part of our own field and we're moving it all to safety? Now, some of what happens is a lot of us have a lot of self-hatred and you can't even imagine treating another person as you would treat yourself because you're not doing so well with yourself. And so there's two things. One is, of course, that imagining this other person as your child or your beloved friend can help. But it also really invites work on ourselves. And that place where we really begin to explore our own being, some of the things that some of you have probably come to see on this retreat, you know, the places where we see our own shadows, the place where we're grumpy and oppositional and sometimes downright mean and we say nasty things and we do nasty things, when we can take that in and mm, sit with it, what that does is it allows us 
to know better how to work with difficult people outside because we know what it's about inside, right? So we know that place where someone else is afraid or, or you know, reactive. We all have difficult. We have some very, very difficult beings. And when I was writing this talk, you know, I've talked, a number of you have heard this, I've had, we've had a very difficult person in our neighborhood for a couple of years now who has, um, you know, the sheriff has come up a few times and there's been restraining orders and, I mean, that kind of chaos. It's very, it's sad and it's, it's hard and um, it's someone who's suffering a lot and pretty depressed. Or I also have... Um, my father-in-law's wife, who is also suffering and very, very afraid of dying. And after a particular family meeting in which we discussed things like wills, decided she didn't um, like my attitude and I'm not allowed in her house anymore. So this is very painful, you know. I've never been kept out of anybody's house, ever. And um, I don't see myself as that kind of person. And so how do I hold these people in my heart? How do you hold your crazy neighbor or your difficult father-in-law or mother-in-law? Or, or what about you know the political figure that you love to hate whose <laughs> ideas threaten disaster? You know, you're convinced that uh, it could be really a problem if they had more power. Or maybe it's the partner who left you or the parent who abused you. You know, there are so many really, really hard people. And so if we're going to meet energies out there in a way that's healing, we have to know them in ourselves. And we all have all of those energies. I can be just as uptight as my father-in-law's wife. And the more I consider it, the more I understand what I need to do to try to reach out to her. You know? And I have places where I'm pretty depressed and crazy on occasion, and it helps me to understand my crazy neighborhood. Neighbor. Not the crazy neighborhood, too. (laughs) (laughs) So we've all got all of that stuff. We do. None of us is 100% virtuous. And if you think you are... You probably have a surprise ahead of you. <laughs> so remember those precepts we took the first night? You know, not harming, not taking what's not offered, not harming with your sexuality, not harming with your speech, not har- not intoxicating body or mind. We don't take them just to be pretty, you know. It's not because it's sort of, it's we're just reminding each other that we're nice, you know. We take the precepts or you live by the Ten Commandments or any of the other ethical systems because if we didn't have those rules and those systems, we wouldn't be behaved. We need them. We need them. So when I look into the pain of some of these people, then I can recognize it. I know that it's mine. And I understand, oh, she's afraid. Oh, she's afraid. And I... I understand, oh, look, they're making it tight and rigid because that's how they cope, because I do that sometimes when I need to cope. I can't make them like me, you know. 
you can't make those people like you either. We maybe we can't be friends with each other, some of those people and me. But I can hold them in my heart and wish them well. You know, and I can be happy when I see some sign of a shift, when I see the neighbor busy and active and not so depressed or my father in law's wife is doing better. So we've begun training with metta, with loving kindness, and we can do practices of compassion and sympathetic joy. So if you remember, I gave in here the image of the drainage ditches in the Himalayan soil, you know, that this is, this is what training the mind is like. We're training the mind to go towards kindness and compassion, and it's digging ditches in this very frozen soil of our mind and heart. So when we train with compassion, we are practicing allowing ourselves to sit and be fully present with pain, our own or another's. The word karuna is the word for compassion in Pali. It means the quivering of the heart. And you've been actually been doing one of the best compassion trainings this week because every person here, I know this beyond a shadow of a doubt, even though I haven't talked to all of you, has been sitting with some form of pain or other. You know? And just learning that you can be with it and try to stay open and keep breathing and not leave the hall and all of those things, that's a training in that ability to be present. We somehow often think that compassion means it's going to be easy. I don't think that's true. I think sometimes compassion is really, really hard. And it's very hard to sit there with that kind of pain. But that's exactly what's required. And the heart, sometimes it almost literally quivers. You can feel it in there, in your body. It's not pity. Pity is actually the near enemy of compassion. It's just that willingness to be present and go, yeah, it's really tough. It's not even trying to fix it. That might happen, but that's not the compassion part. The compassion is the place where you just be there with it. There's a wonderful compassion practice where you sit with another being or with your own pain and you breathe it in on the in-breath. And then the heart quivers and you breathe out compassion. It's called Tonglen. It's another Tibetan practice, actually. You breathe in the pain and breathe out compassion. And I love it. It's a practice I do a lot when I hear sirens or if I see an accident and I just go, oh. Because you know, you know, even if you don't know what the siren's about, somebody's afraid. At the very least, the firemen or the cops are a little nervous and on edge. And so you breathe in all of that difficulty and breathe out compassion. There's also a training in happiness our own happiness and that of others. This is the practice of mudita, or sympathetic joy. And it's, a, it's an aspect of practice <coughs> that also often doesn't get much press. You know, we're hanging in there with pain and suffering, and we forget, you know, what about the joy? What about the joy? And so there's wonderful phrases, you know, may my happiness or may your happiness last a long time. may you enjoy your happiness for a long time. The image that comes is that the ability to take in happiness is like the ability to 
see a flower in full bloom and just take in the beauty of that flower. You could try it. We've got lots of flowers around here. It counters resentment and jealousy. It counters resentment and jealousy, which are the far enemies of, um, of, of sympathetic joy. And it heals any urge that you might have to suppress the happiness of another. So, you know, we're so suspicious of our own happiness and of others. And, of course, that suspicion creates separation, right? Mm-hmm. You know, when we can't sit with pain, that creates separation. When we can't take in another being's happiness, that creates separation. Montaigne says, there's something not altogether <coughs> too displeasing about the misfortunes of our friends. <laughs> yeah, it's interesting, isn't it? That place where you don't quite want your friends to be happy. You know, you're... They buy a new car, and you say, oh, you got a Toyota? (laughs) (laughs) I really should have gotten, you know, you should have gotten one of those new Nissan all-electric things. It'd be really much better. You know, or you went to a retreat at Spirit Rock with Mary Grace. You know, you really should have gone to the retreat with Bob Stahl. You know, that would have been a much better retreat for you. (laughs) Um, You know, so, you know, I just sat with Bob. He's fabulous. So, so, you know, and we just do that thing where we just, just, it's kind of subtle sometimes. We discount another being's happiness. But when we let ourselves feel it, when you take in another person's happiness, then you connect in a really strong way. One of my friends fell in love this winter. And, oh my goodness, I hadn't been around somebody who was newly in love in a while. <laughs> and it was so yummy. You know, she was just gone. And, um, and it was palpable. You know, or we sit in here and something gets said that's amusing and we look at your faces and see the laughter. And there's a way which is so wonderful just to see all these smiling and happy faces or yesterday evening when Jill was talking and then we applauded and you know there was such a moment of joy in the room while we sort of shared her birthing at the <laughs> retreat and, and, and there's, there's a way in which we all come together it's very sweet isn't it you know and so you remember that field of particles I haven't forgotten that you know that, that interconnected field That's what we're talking about here, is that we are interconnected. We share each other's pain. Your pain is in a very real way my pain, and mine is yours. And, and you know, how many of you, and we share pain, right? I'll bet almost everyone in this room wept at least once a week ago when you looked at the images of that tornado. How could you not? You know, just incredible suffering of a town wiped out, you know? Or the opposite is true when something really wonderful happens and we share the joy. So I actually had the thought when I was working on this talk, you remember that practice of Tonglen where you breathe in the pain and you breathe out compassion. I have now invented a new practice which is the practice for sympathetic joy. So in the practice with that, when you're happy with yourself or you see someone else happy, breathe it in. Take it right into your own being and then breathe out that gladness and rejoicing. And it's an amazingly wonderful practice. We could all try it. So I wanted to end with a story. 
I have actually more than one kind of crazy neighbor. <laughs> I have two. I actually have three, but she, the third one. <laughs> so this guy is, is very reclusive and kind of quiet. And I have an Australian shepherd. And Australian shepherds are very smart and very high strung. And at one point, when she was just a puppy, many years ago now, we left her out on the deck when we shouldn't have, and she barked a lot, and he came over, and I don't know what happened, but it wasn't good. And she decided that he was the enemy. (laughs) So she, you know, and I think there were a few episodes of him coming and, I don't know, banging on the door maybe when she was barking inside. I don't even know because I wasn't there. He wrote a couple of nasty notes, and she... When we would walk by his driveway, his house is about 100 yards down the driveway, we would charge down his driveway <laughs> and bark at him in his own house. <laughs> it was not good. It was not good. <laughs> so, needless to say, the relationship has been a bit strained. The dog, the dog is now nine years old, so it's been a while. And sad, because... He's, he works a lot on our road and helps take care of it. It's a private road and just on the other side of the park, actually. And um, so not too long ago, I was going to a road association meeting, and just as I got out of the car, there he was. <laughs> like, I couldn't miss him. And I'm thinking, oh, what am I going to do? And then I remembered something, and I said, Chris saw you had a cat down by your house because there had been this big black cat down by his house. Do you have a cat now? And he looked and he perked up and he got this smile and he said, why, this cat has been hanging out and I've been feeding it and it's a really nice cat and I'm really enjoying the cat being there. And I said, you know, wow, I really, you know, it's great and I really like cats. We have a couple and we chatted about how wonderful cats are and I was happy for him. And, and then he went his way and, you know, things changed. We've had a conversation, one, since then, not a lot, but there, there's that sense of, oh, that shared happiness created a connection that wasn't there before, you know. We aren't separate. We aren't. His pain is my pain. His joy is my joy. My practice is to try to take in both of them and to share them with him. That's my practice with you. That's your practice with us. You know, can we can we move past that illusion of separation so that we can both hold each other's pain and suffering in our hearts and also each other's joy. I want to end tonight with a little focus on joy with one (coughs) last poem. (coughs) Just so we won't let joy have less air time on this retreat. The poem, however, is called Despair. (laughs) It's a a Billy Collins poem. He says, So much gloom and doubt in our poetry, flowers wilting on the table, the self regarding itself in a watery mirror, dead leaves cover the ground, the wind moans in the chimney, 
and the tendrils of the yew tree inch toward the coffin. (laughs) I wonder what the ancient Chinese poets would make of all this, the shadows and empty cupboards. Today, with the sun blazing in the trees, my thoughts turn to the great 10th century celebrators of experience. Wahoo! whose delight in the smallest things could hardly be restrained, and to his joyous counterpart in the western provinces, yee <laughs> So let's sit and breathe together for just a moment. Stay just as you are. No need to rearrange yourselves. So thank you very much for listening and now we have some time, short time, for our walking. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.